0: Have your own podcast. Well, yeah, see, so we got the audio for the <laughs> podcast out there. You know, folks, I appreciate that, Gus. By the way, go download and subscribe <laughs> to the podcast, everybody, to Joel Clash. And there we go. Look at that. Look at that. Who go are download you? the podcast. Who right? are you, Howard Stern, the king of all media? <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. That was great. That was great. Oh, welcome in, everybody. Joel Klatt here this is the Joel Klatt show um yeah that was a great little interaction with Gus there uh, this last weekend. We've got an unbelievable show for you uh, uh this Monday morning but first and foremost I just wanted to say uh Gus is doing great you know he he got got sick and listen it, it happens right every we're all human uh, but he's feeling fine he's looking forward to next week and uh he'll be back and better than ever. Uh, when we head to the big house for that game against Maryland. So Gus is doing great. He really appreciates everybody there that was reaching out and just wondering how he was doing. So uh we'll be back with the uh with the fist bump next next Saturday there at noon Eastern. Okay. This show though on a Monday morning, folks, we've got a lot to get into. OU. All right, exactly what I saw from that OU team. I've got three distinct thoughts, folks, uh, about this OU team. You're going to want to stick around for that. My reaction to AM and and Miami and that game and exactly what those teams are or aren't moving forward in this season. Uh, some quiet statement wins out there, in particular from teams like Penn State, Washington, what you did, Kansas. Some thoughts on Kansas, folks. And anybody that is struggling right now in college football – Maybe you should be looking at Kansas uh, as a blueprint for how to get out of those struggles and then some best of the weekend at the very end. But let's get started, folks. Let's get into it because we've got a lot to dive into with this uh, Monday morning pod. Oklahoma kicked Nebraska's butt. I mean, that was as impressive a victory as I remember, uh, in particular in a game that I've done, because we've done a lot of close games. So let's listen to what Britt Venables had to say after the game to Jenny on the field right after the win. I love the attitude and the hunger in the locker room at halftime and the way we came out in the third quarter and really slammed the door uh, on it. You know, Not being satisfied, not being relaxed. I think the hardest time to coach is when you're having success. And so I'm really proud of the maturity and the poise Um, The determination he's got showed all day. I love what he was saying right there. You know, it can be hard to coach, you know, through success because a lot of times players just believe the hype. That's why Nick Saban, you know, talked about rat poison all the time. The old adage in coaching goes, and, and my dad used to use this, he was a high school football coach, is that you treat winners like losers and losers like winners. Generally, teams that are winning a lot, you've got to find reasons and, and ways to coach them really hard and to get on their case, to get them to hold the standard each and every day. Whereas teams that are losing every single week, you're desperately trying to find the areas in which you can build their confidence so that they can go and they can play with more self-belief. Some thoughts, though, as we get to OU. Um, I've got three specific thoughts, okay? Uh, let's start with the offense. We finally saw the OU offense under Jeff Lebby, and it's ahead of schedule, folks. This offense, I thought, played remarkably well. During the week and the conversations leading up to this game, Jeff Lebby, the offensive coordinator, he was telling me that this was going to be an explosive offense, an offense that was going to lean on the physicality up front in their offensive line. In the back of my mind, I'm thinking to myself, well, that's not the team that I saw on film against Kent State as he's talking, and the bottom line is, folks like they were not showing much at all in the first two weeks. So this was finally an unveiling of what this offense was going to be. And I, for one, thought it looked fantastic. So the handcuffs come off in the first two games. And Jeff Levy even admitted to me, he's like, listen, we were staying basic against Kent State. Okay. I probably ran the ball way too much in particular in the second quarter when I should have been throwing the ball. Based on space and numbers, and more on that uh, in a moment. But he said, "I I didn't do that, and I kept the handcuffs on our offense, and those handcuffs are coming off." And I thought, "Okay, well, we'll see what we get then against Nebraska." And after the first series, I was like, "All right, you know, Nebraska's defense playing pretty well," and then bam, it was phenomenal from that point on. I thought that they were really physical up front. So let's go s- through some of the personnel groups because OU fans, like I said, this offense is for real. We finally saw it, and it's ahead of schedule. They were really physical up front on the offensive line. I thought Cade uh, Matayer, the guard, he did a heck of a job. He's the transfer in from Cal, and he's a guy that solidified them. Now, they've got a few transfers, okay, from uh, from. Well, through the years. Tyler Guyton was a transfer, he was playing right tackle. Chris Murray was a transfer from UCLA, um not not this year but last year. So they've rebuilt their offensive line in the transfer portal and remember they still have their old offensive line coach. So Bill Beedenbo is a guy that has evolved in their run game. Their run game used to be, like two, three years ago, it was all this GT scheme. They would pull a guard, they would pull a tackle, and it was all heavy downhill, kind of gap scheme oriented. Okay, Then last year, it it wasn't materializing. It wasn't working like it had the previous season, and so they changed. They were more of a zone-blocking team. So in a gap scheme, you're really using leverage and angles to block specific guys and create specific lanes For the running back in the zone scheme you're trying to cover up color in the defensive front opposite color in this case and let the running back choose which way he wants to go so the running back's objective is to press the line of scrimmage front side and then if the defense is flowing too fast over the top he can cut back if they aren't and they get stuck behind the play then he can stay front side on the zone. So it really can go anywhere. He's picking his spot of where he wants to go. So, very different style of run game, specific lane versus a running back kind of picking where he wants to go using his vision and creativity. Now, they're much more of a zone team. And within zone, you can run several different tracks of zone, inside zone, outside zone. Um, rather than get into the weeds in the zone scheme, I'm just here to tell you their offensive line did a heck of a job. And they told me that they felt like this offensive line was going to be physical and nasty and a real strength for them moving forward. Again, I hadn't seen that in the first couple of games, but they took those handcuffs off. And I thought that the offensive line was as advertised in that matchup against Nebraska. They just beat Nebraska's defense down. And maybe you could say like, well, yeah, it was just Nebraska. And I get it. Yeah, Nebraska was not playing very good defense coming into that game. They didn't play very well on, on defense against Northwestern. They did not play very well against defense, in particular against Georgia Southern. They gave up, you know, shoot, you know, well over, what, five, 600 yards against Georgia Southern. So I understand there wasn't a great deal of competition, but this was still a step up from what Oklahoma had seen in the first two weeks. And that offense, in particular, that offensive line was physical. Then their running backs, I, you know, I didn't know. Who's the guy who's going to step up for Kennedy Brooks? And what we saw was Eric Gray step up. We saw Marcus Major step up. Both of those guys ran well. Marcus Major is a physical guy. I think he's probably got the most potential, but you can clearly see that Eric Gray has the most versatility. So he gives you kind of that every down back, which is very much kind of a a blanket for the offense, you can just walk in there and you know that you can operate any type of system or concept with Eric Gray back there, whereas Major, he comes back there and you've got some some physicality to that run game. I really liked what they gave you. And then on the outside, by the way, they were really good. Marvin Mims is a heck of a player. I really like Marvin Mims. Mims is a guy that can threaten the defense down the field. He competes for catches at the catch point, which I think is a rarity. And then elsewhere, Theo Weiss, really talented guy. I thought Jalil Farouk played well. Drake Stoops is a guy I love, in particular what he does in the slot. And then they've got young players, in particular Jaden Gibson, who I talked about during the course of the game, 6'5", 195 pounds. They think he's going to be really good. So now all of a sudden, you you couple that with Daniel Parker, a tight end. Braden Wills, a tight end. Helms was in there, at tight end. And that's a versatile offense, guys. I really loved it. But guess what? You still have to have a quarterback. And that's where the rubber meets the road. Why is why is Oklahoma's offense ahead of schedule? Because Dylan Gabriel is experienced and a playmaker. How does that come to fruition in this offense? You always hear that, oh man, this guy is experienced. Oh man, this guy has experience within that system. Dylan Gabriel, he played with Jeff Levy. Uh, or for Jeff Levy at UCF. Well, that's exactly what makes Gabriel so dangerous in this offense is his experience in the offense. Why is that so, Joel? Tell me, please. Well, because the quarterback makes so many decisions based on numbers. Okay, so this offense is predicated on the quarterback's ability to take advantage of ratios. That's what this offense is, and its it's a – it's really a melting pot offense, and many are right now, but a melting pot offense of what you saw from Baylor uh, years back when they were running the spread run attack mixed with what Kiffin does in the passing game, mixed with what Beaton Bow can do in the run game. So now all of a sudden you've got this this pot, this this amazing stew of offense, and, and what makes it go? It's Dylan Gabriel. Why? Because he understands the ratios. Okay, so... We finally saw the real OU offense. It's ahead of schedule, and Dylan Gabriel is the guy that can operate it. Let me explain to you exactly what the ratios mean. When they get into the big spread sets, like I was talking about on the broadcast, the wide receivers way outside of the numbers, guess what they're doing? They're just counting chess pieces. This is why I love football so much. And it boils down to this, folks, and this is the simplicity of it, and this is what makes it so beautiful. Dylan Gabriel looks at the safeties, If there's two safeties back, that means that they have enough players up front to block the front players for Nebraska. It's called open coverage. If he's got an open middle of the field, two safeties back, then he can block everybody in the run front. So guess what you get? You get run game and you get RPOs. So you're putting the second level players in conflict. And by the way, they have more space to cover because the safeties are back at that point. So there's only, in a particular in Nebraska's defense, three linebackers left out there, and you're putting them in conflict, constantly running the football, then getting an RPO, and you're, you're kind of riding that run fake in there, and then they bite and bam, you hit them right behind. So what does the defense have to do then? They have to shift. They have to make an adjustment. So they generally close the middle of the field. What does that mean, Joel? Well, they go from two safeties to, To one safety. They bring a safety down, and then they put one safety in the middle of the field. Guess what that leaves you? Well, you can't block everybody in the run front. There's an extra defender. But guess who's one-on-one on on the outside? Those corners. And as soon as Nebraska went to a middle safety, Jeff Lebby and Dylan Gabriel just started attacking the one-on-ones. Shoot, shoot, slot throws. They, They were taking the seam throw slug on the outside, slant and go. You better believe it. They were attacking those one-on-ones. Why? Because that's what the ratios said. It's a numbers offense. You take advantage of where the defense is going to give you an advantage. That's why it's so huge that Dylan Gabriel has played in the system before and has operated this system because he understands those ratios and he understands the advantages that his offense has and how to read them in real time. So why is the Oklahoma offense ahead of schedule? It's because of Dylan Gabriel. And I thought he played really, really well. It's not the only part of the Oklahoma team that I was impressed with. All right, let's get into the defense really quickly. If the offense was really good, guess what? The defense, they're significantly better this year. Significantly better. OU for years has been trying to figure out the defensive side of the ball. Guess what? OU fans, you finally have a defense that is really good. Really good. And don't give me this garbage like, hey, Nebraska, they were terrible. No, they weren't. Not on offense. Yeah, I know they fired their coach, and I know the defense wasn't very very good. But this was still a team that had played, shoot, I feel like a million straight one-possession games against good opponents, by the way. Only lost to Ohio State by nine last year. This is still an offense that was averaging 36 points a game coming into this weekend. This is still a quarterback in Casey Thompson that last year against Oklahoma in Red River threw for, what, 388 and five tugs, right? So like they can still play. They went right down the field on the first series. I believe it was over 70-yard drive. Bam, they go right down the field. And then from then on, whoa, it was fast, it was tenacious, and it was productive, highly productive. This is the nature of this new defense under Brent Venables, okay? It's multiple fronts trying to disguise what you're doing up front in order to get a free rusher on the quarterback. Get production behind the line of scrimmage. You look at all the TFLs, tackles for loss. You look at the the ability to sack and pressure the quarterback. It was there on ev- almost every as soon as they got a lead, almost every single snap. I thought that they had five, six rushers, a free rusher. Casey Thompson was under constant duress and it really fits their personnel. Folks, their personnel is perfectly suited for this style of defense. Why? Well, they're really big and physical up front so they can jump out of, into odd and even defense, three defensive linemen or four odd or even, okay? They've got big guy, Jeffrey Johnson, the transfer from Tulane, 305 pounds. Isaiah Coe, uh, the, a junior college guy. 305 pounds, Jalen Redman over two ninety. Good to see him get back out there after a COVID opt out and injury last year. Like th- they've got some guys on the inside, but then they've got speed. You've got Reggie Grimes on the outside. Ethan downs had a few productive plays. Deshaun white, David aguabu Danny Stutzman. These guys can run. So now you get the size up front and the confusion of the mul- multiple front defense. And then you put the linebackers in so many different spots and let them run an attack. I thought that that's what allowed them to have so much success in particular against Nebraska. And by the way, this is perfectly suited for a guy like Billy Bowman. Billy Bowman is really showing out, and I love his game, and I love this system. I was talking with Coach Stoops, Bob Stoops, this week uh, in preparation for this game. I had a lot of conversations in preparation. Teddy Lehman, the former linebacker who does the, the sideline for the uh, Oklahoma radio broadcast. And one of the things that, that they were talking about is the level of detail and execution that is being required From this group as opposed to previous and the bottom line is that they are eating it up the players are totally committed to this level of execution and play that they have put on the field the last couple of weeks and I don't think that it's going to end anytime soon like I said folks like Nebraska's offense was not bad coming into this game and Nebraska just kicked their butt again this defense is significantly better than uh, previous. What does that leave us with then? Okay, so we, we talk all about Oklahoma. We get it, okay? We do the game. We see that. This blueprint that Oklahoma has is is much more suited to potentially win a national championship. They know, you know, Oklahoma fans, the blueprint of how to win the Big 12, how to go to the playoff. But this blueprint is much more suited because the defense looks like they can go out there and not just be okay, but maybe be very good. And the bottom line is there are a lot of programs that can have an explosive quality offense. There are very few that field a really good defense. And I saw a really good defense on the field on Saturday. So if this is a team that doesn't have to just go win shootouts in big moments, but can also rely on their defense, take some pressure off of their quarterback, maybe run the ball and play complementary football, then you have a team that can potentially win a game in the playoff and potentially win a national championship. Remember, this is a tried and true blueprint. There's only two teams that have won a national championship in any recent vintage in the last, you know, 15, 20 years that did not have a top 25 defense. It was the Cam Newton-Auburn team who beat Oregon, by the way, and so you're not getting in a physical grudge match there. And the LSU team with Joe Burrow, which was close, by the way. I believe they were, I think 28th is the number, but I could be wrong, maybe 30, 31st. So they were close, but that offense was so good. I mean, they have Jamar Chase and they have Joe Burrow and Clyde Edwards-Alaire. They didn't need a great defense. Uh, and they were able to win a national championship. But this blueprint is much more suited to actually win national championships than what they were playing with previous. It's not a shot at the previous re- regime, by the way, so we shouldn't take it as that, because I still think that USC, even after what they did against uh, a Fresno State, they they clearly could be a, a playoff contender going down the stretch. But that's my thoughts on OU. All right, let's uh, change pace now and, and go to the other, what I felt like was kind of the biggest game of the weekend, and that was Miami visiting Texas A&M. Folks, I told you last week we felt like Texas A&M was in a must-win situation because of what they've got coming up on their schedule. Remember, they've got to face Arkansas in AT&T Stadium in Jerry's World. They've got Mississippi State. They've got Alabama. They could not lose to App State, then Miami, and go through that gauntlet. They were staring two and four right in the face. Okay, They're still staring, by the way, three and three. got to win one of those next three just to be three and three. So – they're not out of the woods, but they were in a real predicament because of the way that they had played early this year. Let's just get a get a, a frame of reference here. Texas A&M wins the game, but this is what Jimbo had to say afterward. Listen, we're not we're nowhere close to being perfect, but I'm very proud of this team. Got better and played a really good football team and won. Now we got to get better and keep going. You know what this game felt like. And I think you get the sense just listening to him right there. I mean, hey, you know, they're really good. And, you know, we got out of here with a win. I'm really proud. He wanted no part of that press conference. Do you know why? Mario Cristobal wanted no part of his. Do you know why? Because these are two programs that have expectations and hopes that are just too soon. It's just too soon for them. We, We all even want this too soon for them. There's these programs we all want Miami to be back and, and we want Texas A&M to live up to the expectations of where they've recruited and invested in their program, but they're just not there. We we all want something that that is just not there yet. Guess what? Miami and Texas A&M you're just like a 14 or 15 year old that like desperately wants their license and it's like great, but you're not 16 yet. You're just not quite there. Neither of them are. Even A&M in a win and you can gripe all you want, Aggie fans. It's like, oh, Clats always hard on us. We won the game. Yes, you won the game. You were also outgained by 128 yards. You didn't even gain 300 yards total on the day. That means against App State, you couldn't get to 200 yards total. Against Miami, you couldn't get to 300 yards total. And you have a head coach that was paid over $70 million and given a 10-year contract because he called the plays for a national championship team. So that's a problem. Offensively, AM is broken to some degree. They don't have the, the requisite quarterback play to go out there and really play great on that side of the ball. They're not quite there yet. Okay, they win, but it took, it took a lot for them to win. Namely, Miami struggling to execute. And I guess you could... Expect this from a team that has a coach in his first year there, but I just felt like they would execute better. They were in the red zone three times, came away with three points. They had that muffed point that led to, to a score for AM. They just didn't play well. Again, they outgained AM by 128 yards. They had 27 first downs and didn't score a touchdown. <laughs> I mean, like Miami should have won the game. So, yeah, AM wins. How confident can you be moving forward? Not very. Not with the schedule they have in front of them. In Miami, not quite there. Yeah, you played pretty well. Not quite there. Too many mistakes. One of the knocks on Mario Cristobal at Oregon was game management. Those crept up. Those crept up again. Red zone issues, special teams issues. This AM team, this Miami team. Not quite legal to drive yet. That's the truth. Uh, Let's get to some quiet statement wins today. uh, Not today, but last week on Saturday. There were three of them. Let's start with the Nittany Lions, Penn State, in SEC country. Singleton, left side to the goal line. Singleton, touchdown, Penn State. And the Nittany Lions have that coveted two-score lead. I'll tell you what, Penn State looks really good. We saw them against Purdue in their opener and they didn't run it well. And uh, those of us that did that game came away from that game and thinking to themselves, thinking to ourselves, ah, they haven't fixed their main issue. So Penn State has not fixed their main issue uh, yet. Well, Nick Singleson said, hold my beer. <laughs> and then he immediately rolled off two great performances. And now, guess what? Penn State has fixed their main issue. The reason Sean Clifford got hurt one, and then two, did not play well down the stretch last year is they had no run game. And now their offensive coordinator, Mike Yursich, he's got a run game to lean on. And that run game is named Nick Singleton. He was the top running back recruit in the country. He comes to State College and delivers. This is one of those rare moments where it's like, the guy that has to be the guy in his very first fall is the guy. Nick Singleton is a monster. He's leading the country in yards per carry at 11. (laughs) 11! That's That's insane. He had 124 yards against Auburn. They had 245 yards rushing as a team. So it's not just him. They're fixing their issues up front. And guess what that's going to do? Take the pressure off of Sean Clifford. So now Sean Clifford doesn't have to be perfect. This is the perfect scenario for Sean Clifford. He's the type of quarterback that can be really good for you if you're not requiring him to be perfect. Okay, there are some quarterbacks like Bryce Young, put a cape on his back, he needed to be perfect and he was and he and he beat Texas on the road. Clifford might not be that guy and that's fine by the way. If Bryce Young's a Heisman Trophy winner and is probably going to be one of the first, you know, one two picks in the draft next spring. Clifford now is a is is a quarterback of an offense that is balanced. They've got some speed on the outside. They believe in their tight ends, and they can run the rock. They they walked into an SEC stadium and just beat up Auburn. It wasn't even as clor, uh, close as the score indicated. And now Penn State is looking at Central uh, Michigan and then Northwestern, both at home, before traveling to Ann Arbor. And Gus and I and Jenny will be there. That's going to be a great game. I fully anticipate if they take care of business, all due respect to Pat Fitzgerald, don't want to underestimate you because I love your program. I fully anticipate Penn State goes into Michigan 5-0. and I fully anticipate that Michigan, if they are able to play like they play every single week, should be also undefeated in that game. Sets up a, m- a mammoth game. Just look, just peek over the, hor- peek over the horizon. And that game is staring at you right in the face with... A balanced Penn State team. Woo! That's a dangerous team, and that's a quiet statement win for the Nittany Lions and for James Franklin. Next up. The student section storms the field at Husky Stadium. Washington 39, number 11, Michigan State 28. How about Washington taking it to Michigan State? Uh, Michigan State, I mean, They're starting to be, listen, I think that Michigan state's still really good. I just think that Washington is also really good. I think what we do, here's, here's the problem for Washington folks. We failed to remember how good Michael Penix was when he's healthy. Michael Penix at Indiana was really good. And guess what? He cut his teeth in Kalen DeBoer's system. So now all of a sudden you've got this coach and quarterback reunited and it's working. It's working. Washington is playing fast and physical on defense. They shut down Michigan State's running game. And that's where if Michigan State can't run the ball, then they're going to have problems. And they struggled last year defending the pass and they're continuing to struggle defending the pass. Michael Penix, 397 through the air with four touchdowns. How about that? Washington, that is a quiet statement win. And guess what? The Pacific Northwest had a great day. Great day. Washington, Oregon played great against BYU. The whole Pac-12, by the way, we're going to do this on Wednesday. I've got a, I've got a whole discussion about how this. the Pac-12 is quietly sitting in the weeds. And right now, they've got four teams that are really good. All are going to be ranked. And at some point fairly soon they're all going to be ranked closer to the top 15 and inside of that top 15 so Washington great statement went over Michigan State tough on defense Michael Penix good on you sir we forgot how good you really were next up I'm really excited for these guys I'm excited that we have some games at home I sure hope people uh, and our fans come out and check these guys out because you know they're 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 playing with some inspiration they're 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 playing well and uh you know, we need to create a great home field advantage. No, oh, I love this guy. That was Lance Leipold, head coach of the Kansas Jayhawks. They're three and O. Oh. <laughs> Kansas, three and0. Oh. Take down Houston 4830. Folks, it's hard to it's hard to overstate how amazing this is. Lance Leipold is doing God's work in Lawrence, Kansas. All right. First, to understand how amazing 3-0 is for Kansas, you've got to, like, just think back a little bit in in recent vintage. They were 3-27 in their last 30 games. 30 games. Right? So, like, they were at the depths of the pit, of the power five. All right. When you said like, who's the worst team, the power five for a long time, you just like Kansas. Boom. For some times it was like Rutgers uh, was down there. Unfortunately, like like right now you're like uh, Colorado is probably down there. It's they three and 27 in their last 30 games. But here's the thing. We should have known that something was brewing. This didn't come out of nowhere and it rarely does. Why? Because there is, there is a pattern to how you build a program. Okay. There's a pattern to how you take a program that is in the weeds, in the pit of college football and how you bring them out of that pit here. Here's how the pattern goes. And this is, it goes all the way back to, you know, Joe Paterno and Bobby Bowden. They would talk about this. They would talk about, listen, if you take over a program like that, that's highly developmental, you're going to lose big. But they don't end it right there. You don't just lose big, okay? You don't just sit there and get your teeth kicked in. Guess what? You lose big and then if you're doing the right things and if you're getting better, you'll eventually lose small. This is the most important step and it's the step that nobody wants to take and that everybody jumps. Nobody has the presence or excuse me the pre, uh, the, the the perseverance or 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 the stamina, or the willpower to go from step one to step two. They all want to go to step three. You've got to lose big before you're ever going to lose small. You're going to lose small before you ever take that step that everybody wants to take, which is to win small. See, everyone just wants to get to that point where they're winning, but what they don't understand is that there is a step before that. If you're going to lose big, you're going to lose small if, and only if, you're doing the right things. You know how how, how maddening that must be? Do you know how maddening it must be when you're in the throes of 3-27 and 27 in your last 30, and you realize that, you know what, we're doing the right things. We're getting better. Everyone else might not see it, but we know we're getting better. And we have the perseverance... And the stamina to see this through. They took that step late last year, folks. They beat Texas and then lost by three to TCU and by six to West Virginia. They lost small. They lost small. They stole one against Texas, and all the focus went to Texas because that's what we do in college football. We take a major brand. We take the ones that we always talk about, and then we we inundate the fan bases with just content about those places. Texas lost. Texas lost. Texas. Texas. Sark. Back. Are they? Nah. Blah. And we never just peek under the covers and you say to yourself, hey, you know that Texas that Texas team? They lost to a team that's getting better. Kansas, they took the step, and they took the steps necessary to get to where they're starting to go, which is from winning small to potentially winning big. They're 3-0 and with two wins on the road. Two wins on the road. So there's the track, folks. You're going to lose big before you can ever lose small. That's the most important step. Then you're going to lose small before you can ever win small. It's an important step. You're going to win small before you're ever going to win big. And this is an important lesson, folks. This is an important time in college football because right now we have a lot of programs in the country that just think, you know what? It's white flag time. It's never going to happen here. We're never going to return to our glory days. We might have been great once, but we're never going to return to our glory days. Well, guess what? Kansas is proving you wrong. Lance Leipold is proving you wrong. The perseverance of taking step two is proving you wrong wrong okay so if you're in one of those pits what do you learn from kansas's 3-0 what do you learn from lance leipold and what he's doing with the jayhawks well you learn four lessons okay folks these are four lessons and if you're in one of those pits you better write these down first and foremost you better know where you're at you better be realistic with yourself and know how far in the pit you are how deep is it Because if you don't define that clearly, if you aren't honest with yourself about where your program is, then you're going to think that you're a week or two away from winning small. And at some places that just ain't the case. That just ain't the case. And it's going to take a lot of pain and effort and sweat and turmoil to get to a place where you can even just lose small by three to TCU or by six to West Virginia before you can win small three games to open this year, like Kansas. So you better clearly define and be honest with where you're at. Now it comes to step two, know where you want to go and be honest about where you're going. Just like I talked to you about, you've got to understand that starting to lose small can be growth. You can't just throw your hands up and say, you know what? I'm out parachute. We've got to be winning or I'm out. So you've got to understand the rungs on the ladder that you've got to step on in order to get yourself out of that pit. And you better be honest with yourself about that. Know where you want to go. Clearly define goals along the way. And you better know exactly how you're going to get there. You better know. That means that you better have an identity of how you recruit. You better have an identity of how you play. You better have an identity of how you go about your business in the locker room and in the classroom. As a program, you better have an identity. And that identity better have all the chips in the middle of the table from everybody around the program. That's the most important part. You... If you don't know how you're going to get there, then everybody has a thought. We better do this. We got to throw more. We got to run more. We got to spend more. We got to recruit differently. No, 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 no. There can't be little fractures like that. You got to know exactly how you're going to get there. And everybody's got to believe. Everybody. The players got to believe it. They got to know exactly what they're doing day in and day out. The training staff, the nutrition staff, the strength staff, the academic staff. The athletic director, the chancellor, the board of regents, the major donors, everybody better be pushing in the same direction. Why? Because you know where you're going. You know who your uh, what your identity is. And then the fourth step, folks, you better understand that you've got to push the envelope on innovation. You've got to evolve with college football as college football evolves. You can't just look back in the rear view mirror and say, we used to be great. Let's do it how we used to do it. Guess why? Guess why? College football is changing and it has changed and you better evolve or you will get past and you will stay past. Here's an example. Folks, if you're going to be really good in college football, you better do something really innovative in recruiting. I believe that a team that is in in the, the pit of college football should have three recruiting departments. Not one, three. Why do you need three, Joel? Well, because you're recruiting three very different types of players. What do you mean? Well, let me explain. First and foremost, you better relentlessly recruit high school athletes. You better identify guys that you can develop and will buy into your program, and you better relentlessly recruit them and pursue them daily. Calls. Every time that it's legal to call them, you call them. Relentlessly pursue those guys. That's why you need a whole department just recruiting high school athletes. Your coaching staff, relentlessly recruiting high school athletes, relentlessly identifying the ones that are realistic for you to get and that will realistically help you start to win football games. Then you've got to have a second recruiting department. Who who are you recruiting there? Transfer athletes. You've got to identify the players that can come in and help you right away in the spots that you need help. And it's not just about, hey, that guy's in the porter and that guy's in the porter. You've got to understand and identify what types of guys will fit in your program to come in and actually help you. It's not enough just to have a transfer. You've got to have the right transfers. And by the way, if you don't want to play the transfer game, You're going to get passed up. Oklahoma is a great example. Michigan State is a great example. USC is a great example. These are teams that identified needs and went out and attacked them with players that they knew were going to identify with their system and buy into their product. So that's the second recruiting department. And then here's the third recruiting department. And this might be the most important one. Who's left, Joel? Who's left for the third recruiting department? Your own players. Because they can get up and walk out anytime they want. So you better relentlessly recruit and pursue your own players to keep your core. If you're not doing that, then you're going to rebuild your team every year. And it's not about, at that point, having good culture or bad culture. You've got no culture. You've got no culture at all. It's transient. It just changes year after year. You better be on the phone texting your players. How are you doing? How are things at home? How's school? How can I help you? Because that's the only way that you're going to build a family environment and a locker room that cares for one another and can also help you recruit those athletes that you need from the outside into your locker room that can help you win football games. You want to change your locker room? Relentlessly pursue your own players. They're the ones that need you the most. And they're the ones that are going to help you the most day in and day out. So there you go, folks. It's not the end of the world if you're in the pit of college football. And there are several programs that are there right now. It can be done. And Lance Leipold is proving that at Kansas with his 3-0 and start. Last thing of what I felt like was the best thing in college football last weekend. Chase going to step up in the pocket. Sets. Throws high into the air. It's up for grabs. It is juggle. He got it. He got it. the other it. It's the Don't you give up on these mountaineers, baby? He oh. stormed the field. Abstain wins on Miracle on the Mountain Part Two. <laughs> that was. I mean, how can you not love this sport? I love everything about it. I just got all passionate. I just went preacher on you about Kansas being 3-0. I love this sport. I love college football in part because of what happened in Boone, North Carolina. That was off. How about this program, by the way? 40 points in the fourth quarter and you fall short to North Carolina. That was an unbelievable... I mean, you have that game in and of itself in a season and it's wild. But then they roll into the SEC territory. They take down the 12th man in Texas A&M. And- and the very next week, they throw a Hail Mary against Troy on the day that game day was there. Have a year, App State. The Nears. Somewhere Daniel Jeremiah is smiling. That's going to do it for us uh, today, folks. Tune in Wednesday. Uh, we'll have a new podcast on Wednesday, a new one on Thursday. You can follow the show at Joel Clatt Show. Please subscribe, download, leave us a review. Um, if you're listening to this, you love this sport just as much as, as I do. And for that, I am very thankful. So thanks for listening folks. And we'll be back on Wednesday.